I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Turn Falcon. Uh, where a player is hit on the head with a footy, uh, emanated from a pass in a, in a uh, South Queensland Crushers game at Lang Park um, when Mario Fennick was coming off the field to be replaced and the dummy half Ray Herring threw the ball and hit Mario on the head. <laughs> now, at that stage, Mario and Kevy were on the panel of the Channel 9 Brisbane footy show. And when it came on air that night on the panel... Mario blew up Deluxe, and the next ad break, Kevy was sitting beside me on the panel. Mario came over, put his arms around, around Kevy's neck and said, I'm going to strangle you, you little blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Down the block, Andrew John. Inside for Elba. Elba will score. Elba will score. Newcastle has won. Welcome back to the Rugby League Guru Podcast. Today, I'm lucky enough to bring you a fantastic interview with a champion bloke, Tony Durkin. Now, Tony, he was the Queensland editor of Rugby League Week in the 80s and the 90s, and then he went on to be the media manager of the Brisbane Broncos. During his time at the Broncos, they won two premierships in the year 2000 and in the year 2006, which was Tony's final year at the Brisbane Broncos. He essentially had to leave because his relationship with Wayne Bennett wasn't overly great, and it's sort of been a common common occurrence across his career. Uh, he's obviously been the Queensland editor of Rugby League Week, had to come in contact with Wayne Bennett a lot of the time. They've always had a bit of a rocky relationship. So to hear Tony talk about that in this interview really is sensational to hear. As I said, he was on the ground Rugby League Week during the 1980s when Queensland Rugby League was really exploding. And then 1988, the Brisbane Broncos are born. And Tony had a very unique perspective on this, obviously from the football side of things, but also the business side of things, which Tony will touch on. He just knows everything about Queensland Rugby League from the last 40 years. A fantastic little history lesson coming up here on obviously the clubs, but also players. We talk about Mal Meninga, Alan Langer, Gene Miles, Wally Lewis, all of these champion footballers. And Tony, obviously being a journalist, got to know them. The relationship with players is very different back then, but he was also able to go on three kangaroo tours and mingle in with the with all the players. That's in 1986, 1990, and 1994. This is a cracking interview with Tony. As I said, it's only part one. There's going to be three parts coming over the next two weeks where we dive into Super League, Brisbane Broncos, everything, everything that Tony's been through during his incredible career in rugby league. This is a sensational chat. I can't wait to bring it to you. Let's kick it off. Tony, welcome on. How are we, mate? 
Very well, Nathan. Yourself? Yeah, going good. Now, obviously, the listeners would have picked up from your name in the introduction. Uh, we're obviously related, unfortunately. What's the uh, What's the deal there? Fortunately, oh, I don't know. About Unfortunately that. Well, for you, I was going to say. Oh no! Well, your grandfather Des is my first cousin, so we'll have to work it out from there. Uh, mate, I, we're cousins. We're cousins. We're cousins. Oh, I was with the grandparents on the weekend trying to work it out, and it was not easy. Well, we're cousins, and we both love one thing in particular: rugby league. Now, mate, obviously you've carved an unbelievable career out of our great sport, rugby league. Where, where did it all start for you? Like, as a, as a young bloke, when, when was your first interest in rugby league? Oh, back when I was probably six or seven years of age, we lived on a rural property in northwestern New South Wales, and rather than me be interested in sheep and cattle and wheat and driving tractors and riding horses, I, I, kind, of, uh, I kind of went towards sport, rugby league in particular. Uh, our little primary school was only less than 100 people or 100 kids, so there was no competition until I went to boarding school in Armadale when I was 12 years of age, and then I started to play competitive sport, rugby league and rugby union, actually, at De La Salle in Armadale, where actually your grandfather, Des, actually went to uh, went to De La Salle in Armadale as well. How did, and, uh, uh, how did he go with the ball in hand? I'm not sure. He was there before me, so I'm not sure. No, but there was no... There was no, uh, oh, you, Des Durkin's cousin. There was none of that, so I'm not quite sure that, that Des started as a, as a footy player, but no, I, I straight away loved it. Probably the best six years, some of the best six years of my life at boarding school, the camaraderie and the competition, and that's where I started to get a competitive edge and, uh, and loved it. I loved it from then on. And I believe whilst you were there, mate, you, were, you started to write um, a couple of articles for the school magazine and whatnot? Yeah. Yeah, on, on, on sport, uh, and that got me, that whet my appetite in journalism and in sport, and uh, I started off as a cadet journalist on the Inverell paper, then went to Glen Innes, then Grafton, and in 1980, my twin brother, actually, Chris, uh, found a, uh, an advertisement in the summer edition of Rugby League Week and rang me and said, do you know that uh, Queensland's looking for an editor of Rugby League Week, and that's one thing I always wanted to do, and... I applied for the job and got it and moved north and have not left. Must look back at that phone call and think you, you must just pinch yourself. What what a life changing moment! It certainly was, Nathan. It was uh, it was wonderful. And as fate would have it, when I first went to Brisbane in 1980 as the as the first editor of Rugby League Week in Queensland. Prior to that, uh, Rugby League Week had been going for about eight or nine years, uh, but they just had stringers uh, in Queensland supplying. Uh, news in inverted commas. It wasn't really news. It was rehashed uh, news that was probably published a week to ten days later. Uh, and uh, so I was the first first editor up there to actually be singly employed by Rugby League Week and not not you know take copy from other journos. Uh, but at the same time, 4BC in Brisbane, the radio station 4BC was granted sole commercial rights to cover the game in Brisbane. Uh, so a guy called John McCoy, who was the, the rugby league caller on 4BC, and I did a deal, whereas he would write a column for Rugby League Week to get his name out there uh, in the in the public domain, and I became his co-commentator on on the footy call. So we we both developed our uh, our name from from that little venture, which uh, turned into a long career for me in in not only in uh, in print journalism but in radio and, and, and also TV in a, in a long period of time in working in Brisbane. So it was great, fantastic. 
Mate, I imagine coming from your um, humble beginnings, small town, Brisbane must have hit you like a train. Oh, yeah. yeah, it did. It's not, Brisbane then wasn't quite as as, uh, as grown up as it is now. Back in 1980, but yeah, it was it was it was still pretty uh, pretty um, you know dramatic for me at that stage. But you know, I was I was focused on what I wanted to do. I had two little kids, a wife, and two little kids back then, and uh, it changed our lives dramatically. But for the better, we we've just had the most wonderful wonderful life, and and my career took off from there. And mate, but before we do get into your career, obviously you did play footy when you were growing up. Uh, I believe you played as an outside back and you eventually gave up the game because of a heap of concussions, essentially. Is that right? Yeah, interesting. It's, uh, that's the big topic around at the moment. I was I was no gun as a footballer. I actually represented Group 5 uh, in that northern New South Wales area in Northern Division trials a couple of times. Didn't go any further than that. In the last year I played, 1972, uh, I was hospitalised three times with concussion and uh, you know having a journalistic career I thought was probably a better prospect for me than a football career so I gave it away then um, and now I have the odd fear about gee, what's that bloke's name gee I know his face but what's his name uh, so it, it wasn't that severe back then but I think it was a, it was a very smart decision that I made No you've definitely made worse decisions can I ask you Back then, when you did give up the game on the back of concussions, I mean, from what I've gathered, the culture back then was sort of a get up, deal with it, keep moving. Uh, it's yep. very different to how it is now. Was there was there any eyebrows raised towards you? Was was there teammates that sort of thought, what on earth is he's doing? What 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 was the go around that? Oh, not really. I think they understood. I I I'd, uh, I'd just been married. I had a son, and I had another one, another son on the way. So it was a, it was a practical decision as well and it was difficult for me because um, I used to have to write the reports in the local paper on the footy and uh, you know footy in those days in the bush you'd play on Sundays and like we'd go to places like Moree and uh, two and two and a half three hour trips to, to places to play footy and by the time I got home uh, from the game on the Sunday it was probably close to midnight and then I'd have to be up at Sparrows to to write the report, so it was, it was a pretty tough gig actually, and um, you know I didn't mind the fact that I that I finally gave it away. I missed it, but um, that's life. Take me back to when you arrived in Brisbane, mate. I'm imagining that you wouldn't have had too many connections around the game at that stage. I imagine that must have made it a little bit difficult for you. It was pretty tough, actually. Uh, I, I really I'm trying to think of anyone that I did know in Brisbane. I don't think there was too many people I did actually know. But the Brisbane, had, the Brisbane competition had, had started to take off, and I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to bemoan the uh, the quality of the game before I got there. 1980 was a real turning point for the game in Brisbane because uh, the coach, the, some of the coaches up there at the time, Frank Stanton, uh, actually moved to Brisbane that year to coach Redcliffe, Bobby McCarthy, the great Bob McCarthy was coaching South in Brisbane in, in his first stint. A guy called Ross Strudwick was there. There's Morris Graham Lowe, the Kiwi, the Kiwi coach was there. Wayne Bennett, uh, Ronnie Rafe were a famous name. So th- that was the that was the ilk of the coaching uh, fraternity in Brisbane at the time. So the game was was really a- about to take off. And uh, of course, my first job was to go around and introduce myself to all these guys. And 99.9 uh, percent of them were pleased to see me, except one bloke. 
me old mate Wayne Bennett. I reckon I could have it guessed was, that one. It was interesting. Uh, I went out, he was coaching brothers at the time, and uh, I went out and watched the team train and waited till most of the people had left and walked up to up to Wayne and put my hand out and said, uh, oh, Wayne, uh, my name's Tony Dirk and I'm the new editor of Rugby League Week in, uh, in Queensland. And he looked at me and he went, so? <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was my introduction to Wayne and uh, even though I, I went on to work for the Broncos for quite a long period of time, um, our relationship was okay, but it was we were never the best of mates, put it that way. And mate, of course, we are going to touch on Wayne pretty heavily later, aren't we? I hope so. I'm looking forward to it. Mate, tell me, um, of the other coaches there that you mentioned, like Bob McCarthy's one that I'm really interested in, what, what was he like as a bloke? Absolutely fantastic. And when, when he finished uh, coaching, or maybe when he was, no, when he, when he finished coaching, I think it was, we, we did do some, some commentary together on on 4BC, uh, Bobby and I. Uh, he was just a fantastic bloke. But it was interesting, his wife Judy would say, Dirko, I can't believe that you support Queensland in state of origin. You were born in New South Wales. You can't take, you can't take your, your heredity, your, uh, you know, like where you were born, you can't take that out of your system. And Bobby was the same, of course. They were both obviously staunch New South Wales people. But I used to ghost Bobby. Actually, Bobby had a Bobby McCarthy had a column in Rugby League Week, and uh, I used to go, ghost Macker. And sometimes I'd ring him and say, "Macker, any idea what we're going to talk about today?" And oh, gee, I don't know, Dirk. What do you reckon? I said, "Well, what about X, Y, Z? What do you think?" Yeah, mate. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. Why don't you write something and ring me back, which I do, and I ring him back and read it to him. He'd say, "Mate, you know me. You know me better than I know myself." <laughs> Just a great character, a wonderful bloke, great footballer, and uh, a terrific fella. Tony, you mentioned obviously 1980, a bit of a turning point for Queensland Rugby League, and over the next eight years, uh, it would only get better. Of course, the introduction of the Brisbane Broncos, the Gold Coast Giants. When did you first? start to get an idea that, you know, those two sides, especially the Broncos coming into the New South Wales Rugby League, that that was going to be a reality? The four businessmen who launched the Broncos, Barry Miranda, Paul Morgan, Steve Williams and Gary Borkin, were all ex-Rugby League players who played representative footy uh, in Brisbane. Very, very influential business people who could see the need for a, a team in the, what was then... Not, not actually the national competition, but it certainly was a, a competition that was on the that was growing, and uh, Queensland was producing so many good players that, uh, and they all were all going to Sydney. Any any player in, in Queensland worth their salt back then uh, was playing in Sydney by the time those teams came into the competition, and that was going to continue unless they could stay at home and 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 play in that top flight competition. Uh, but I was. Not clo- I won't say I was closely involved uh, in the development of the Broncos, but certainly um, they had my ear at, at certain stages of the, the Miranda uh, consortium on, on various things, and you know, it was a pleasure to be involved with them. Mate, one player I want to ask you about from that era is, of course, Wally Lewis. Uh, I think people uh, my age and younger, that generation, because you know he only came into the, the NRL competition in 88, they don't understand what he achieved before that and how much of a brilliant player he was. Give us an insight to Wally Lewis. You obviously saw a lot of his career. Actually, the first game I saw Wally play, it was the very first game I saw when I went to Brisbane. It was a trial match between Valley's, Wally's club, and uh, Brisbane North, which was coached by Graham Lowe. Uh, and uh, a guy called Mark Graham 
probably one of the up there. He probably in my top ten best players of all time, Mark Graham. Just a wonderful, wonderful player and a great talent. He just come over from New Zealand. It was his first game for North, and uh, he actually broke Wally's jaw. Now Wally thinks it was on purpose. I don't think it was on purpose. I think it was accidental. It was a bit of a blue and Mark Graham came running in as, as players do, but I don't think he threw a punch. I just think it was an unfortunate clash, but uh, that was the first time I saw Wally play. And Wally was actually, the, we, we had a photograph on the front page of Rugby League Week. I'm not sure whether it was in the national edition or just the Queensland edition of Wally's head swathed in bandages, sitting there looking very sad. So I didn't see him for a few weeks after that, but you could tell, as soon as I saw him play, you could tell he was a brilliant talent. Uh, he was a bit lazy. Uh, a lot of New South Wales people thought that even when he played for Australia and and Queensland at times. But um, uh, he just knew how to pace himself out on the footy field. Wally, he was just a magnificent competitor. You know, when the stakes were the highest, he played at his very, very best. And that was at State of Origin uh, 99.9% of the time. Uh, club football, he used to coast a little bit probably, but he was always head and shoulders above everyone else. He could defend magnificently. He, he was like, he reminded me a lot of Sturlow and Jonathan Thurston and Cameron Smith and those wonderful players who was probably one or two uh, plays ahead of everyone else on the field. He could see what was going to unfold, but yeah, he, he stands. Wally, in my opinion, uh, is the number one player in the game that I've seen. Who are the guys for you that are just under him? You know, is it Sterling? Is it Joey? Who, who are the guys that you have around that mark of Wally then? Oh, Joey Johns. He probably had more string to his bow than Wally. They were very, very similar players, uh, Wally and, and Andrew Johns. Andrew Johns, is, uh, the other string that he had to his bow that Wally did was his magnificent goal kicking. Wally actually could kick goals if he had to and if he wanted to, but not as proficiently as... Uh, as Andrew Johns, they're my top two, but it's very hard to split them. You know, I said Thurston, Cameron Smith, Brad Fittler, Sturlow, Ray, I mean, Bobby Fulton, you know, I remember back that far, Reg Gaznier, Graham Langlers, I'm old enough to remember those blokes when they were in their prime. Johnny Raper. Uh, there's been some wonderful players and it's, 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 it's all about individual opinion and, that's my opinion. Wally number one, Joey very, very closely number two. Take me to the start of the uh, of the Brisbane Broncos, 1988. They've just come into the competition. And what was your thoughts of them when they first entered? Did you think they were going to be an instant success? Do you think they were going to struggle for the first couple of years? How, how did they – What like, I want to know what the optics of the Brisbane Broncos looked like in 88 when they came in for you. Well, they had a good side. They had very, very talented players. Wally was 28, 27. So, not, I'd say he was, if he wasn't in his prime, he was pretty close to it. Gene Miles, they were the first two that the Broncos signed. And once they signed Wally and Gino, there was a flood of, of really good players uh, that came along. Greg Dowling, Brian Niebling, some of their forwards were probably a little longer in the tooth and, and maybe getting towards the end of their careers. But they'd played State of Origin and they'd played Test Football. So, uh you know the standard was the standard. The team was very, very high, as was exemplified by the fact that they smashed Manly, the premiers, in their very first game. But as the season progressed, you could tell that the week-to-week tough competition and the travel, and that's something that a lot of people don't take into consideration. Like the Broncos had to travel every second week, something that they weren't used to, uh, and I think that took a toll on them. But 
you know, they were always competitive right from the very start. And even though it took them four years to win a comp, um, they were always, you know, they were always thereabouts in, the, in those early days. I mean, it's obviously during this time that uh, you enter into a bit of commentary yourself. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure how it started. Uh, as I, I said earlier, I did some broadcasting on 4BC, and then when they came into the competition, Channel 10 actually had the rights back then, and Queenslanders being Queenslanders are not very trusting. <laughs> uh, in fact, they're probably, we're probably paranoid, actually, us folks up here. So <laughs> Channel 10 in, in, in Queensland said, well, look, we don't. Uh, we think the Channel 10 commentary team in Sydney might be a bit biased against our boys, so we're going to have our own commentary team. So they selected a commentary team. I wasn't in the, didn't uh, do anything in the initial year, but the next year, 89, there was Billy J. Smith, David Fordham, uh, a guy called David Wright, who, who played for Australia back in the back in the 70s, and myself, we used to, we, we'd do the, the Broncos, say so the Broncos played at home on a Friday night, well, we'd cover that game for just the Queensland audience, and then the the Sunday game, wherever it was, it might be in it might be at Parramatta or it might be in in Canberra. We'd fly down and cover that game as well. So uh, that was good fun. That was really really good fun. With that lasted, I think, for three or four years. And Channel Nine took it over from then, and I did a bit of work for them. And we had a we had a footy show, uh, a Channel Nine Brisbane or Queensland footy show that went for for three or four years as well. And um, in fact, the 1990 Kangaroo Tour, um, I was on the sideline for uh, for Channel 10 on that tour with Graham Hughes, David Morrow and uh, and Graham Lowe. So, mate, I had great fun. It was, it was terrific. Absolutely terrific. Mate, you mentioned uh, the Channel 9 having their own Brisbane uh, footy show. One guy you're on there with is was, of course, Kevy Walters. Uh, tell me about him, mate. Obviously... Um, just started his new coaching role at the Brisbane Broncos. Hasn't started overly well for him. T- t- tell me about the bloke that he is. He's a champion. I love him, and I'm not. A, I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, too butch to say that. I love him to death. He's just a little champion, little bloke. The the entire family is five Walters boys in that family, and every one of them wore a maroon jersey for Queensland as a junior. And of course, Kevy, uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin, Kevin, and Steve. Uh, all played for Australia and, and more than Maroon in State of Origin as well. Now, he's a terrific bug. And I think uh, people saw in the last 20 minutes of that game against the Bulldogs on uh, on the weekend that when the Broncos hit their straps, they're going to play some very, very entertaining football. But an interesting story uh, about the footy show. Now, I think most people uh, will probably uh, be aware that the term Falcon... Uh, where a player is hit on the head with a footy, uh, emanated from a pass in a in a uh, South Queensland Crushers game at Lang Park um, when Mario Fennick was coming off the field to be replaced and the dummy half Ray Herring threw the ball and hit Mario on the head. <laughs> now, at that stage, Mario and Kevy were on the panel of the Channel 9 Brisbane footy show. So we've gone up for our, our meeting before the... Uh, before we went to air, we always had a had a meeting, and a, the director would say, "Now we're going to show this, this, and this." And they showed the footage of that. And Mario said, "You're not going to show that, are you?" Oh yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. We're not going to show that. We're not going to show that. That's embarrassing to me. Blah blah blah. So away away it went. Anyway, we decided we weren't going to show it. Kevy, after we'd had the meeting, went back to the director and said, "You got to put that in. If that was me 
or Peter Jackson was on the panel or Peter Jackson or Gary Belcher or any of these other guys, you'd run it. And because Mario's blown up, you're not going to run it. So the director ran it. And when it came on air that night on the panel, Mario blew up Deluxe. And the, the next ad break, Kevy was sitting beside me on the panel. Mario came over, put his arms around ran Kevy's neck and said, I'm going to strangle you, you little blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and that's typical of the Kevy Walters, you know, just a, a real larrikin, but a bloke who says it's got to be fair. You've got to be fair. You've got to deal with everybody in the same way. And that, that typifies to me the Kevy Walters I know. But he's changed a lot. He's much more serious now, Kevy, than I think has been in the past. And um, I hope for his sake, particularly in the team that I follow, the Broncos, that, he can get him back on track. Might have been uh, embarrassing for him at the time, but I, I reckon that little clip has done massive overs for uh, for Mario oh. Fennick. Probably the best. Thing, no, I was going to say the best thing he did in his career. That's very unfair. He was a he was a very tough bloke, old Mario, and I think he's had a few few head knocks in his time, Mario. But a really good fella who loves rugby league as well and has done a lot for the game. But you're right, um, the Falcon. That's what it's he's that's called after the great Mario Fennick. Mate, it is one thing I'll say about Mario. Obviously, with me working in Sydney in a lot of schools, he, he he's over the years done a lot of um, a lot of trips to schools, and geez, he is fantastic with the kids. Like he's one of the he's one of the guys that comes out, and you know, all the the kids in this younger generation don't exactly know who he is, but just his energy around the game is just unreal. No, he's, well, his energy when he played was unreal too. He, you know, he never gave an inch, but no, he's true fellow Mario. I, I don't think he's stint with a with the Queensland Crushers was uh, probably the most successful thing he did in his uh, in his career or probably the wisest but we got to know him and I'm very thankful for that. Mate you mentioned uh, before we started recording about the pilot strike of 1989 and of course yourself being on TV um, it was a pretty good wicket at that time tell me about that period. Yeah that was that was interesting it, uh, I think it kicked off just before the final started uh, the pilot the national uh, pilot strike and uh, we, because we were covering all these other games that I spoke about earlier, we uh, we hired a private jet. Channel Ten hired a private jet for us to to travel to and from all of the games. I think it was over a five week period. Uh, we we even though the Broncos and the the what were they the Giants back then weren't figuring in the finals, we still covered every game. I think it was either five or six weeks. We travelled away every week in this flash jet with leather seats and. Every all the bells and whistles. It was yeah, it was very good. I mean, they were the days when TV, whether they did or not, I don't know, seemed to have a lot of money, and there was no expense spared, and it was uh, it was a bit selfish, but very nice to be involved in it. Mate, you're obviously no stranger to uh, an aeroplane going on three kangaroo tours, kicking off in 1986. Tell me about that tour, mate. Well, that was an eye opener. Uh, I'd been to I'd been to England uh, once before in in nineteen eighty four after I'd uh, been to a, a game in France. Uh, I'll just I'll, I'll just digress a little. There was a there was a game in France in in nineteen eighty four in Paris actually to um, to celebrate the fiftieth uh, anniversary of the birth of the game in in France, and there was a team from Oceania selected to play a team from Europe. So the Oceania team was made up of Australia, New Zealand and Papua New Guinea playing a team from England or Great Britain, uh, which was you know, mostly England, but I think a couple of Welsh players and there might have been a, a Scot or an Irishman in there. And, of course, the 
Wally Lewis, Gene Miles, uh, Wayne Pierce, uh, Ray Price is a pretty strong. Mark Crane, pretty strong Oceana side, and they they whipped the uh, they whipped the Great Britain side. But it was the first time I ever saw Elry Hanley play, and Elry Hanley was to the to the um, Southern Hemisphere was was virtually unknown. No one had heard of him, and I saw him play, and he scored the only try, and he was just electric. And uh, I remember I wrote a story. A, a big colour feature in Rugby League Week on this guy and sent it back to my boss, Ian Heads, and Jeremy said, Dirk, are you sure you're giving this bloke a big rap? You sure is this good? I said, I think so. Anyway, that was good judgment. But 1986 Kangaroo Tour, captained by the great Wally Lewis, and uh, Rugby League Week uh, took away supporters' tours. Uh, well, I think we had about 100 and, 120 people, three busloads, might have been a few more than that that went over. And Wally Lewis's mum and dad, um, Jimmy and June, were actually on the bus, the tour, the supporters bus that I led. And uh, as a result of that, we had a little some influence over the team management and the coach. And after the second test match, the entire kangaroo squad of 28 players and coaching staff and management came to a luncheon that we had on for our supporters and stayed for dinner and probably stayed for three or four hours. It was just the most unbelievably uh, wonderful experience that uh, that I had, and I had the I had the pleasure of interviewing some of the players and the coach and our supporters. You can imagine how starry-eyed they were. But I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. That was a wonderful, wonderful trip. Of course, undefeated. The second kangaroo team in four years to go through uh, the tour undefeated and what a wonderful team. Mal Meninga couldn't even make the side. That's how good it was back then. Wow. Mate, couldn't make the starting side. He was on the bench. Uh, Gene Miles and uh, and Brett Kenny were in the centres and when Mal came on, he came and played in the back row. He was, of course, big enough to play in the back row, but that's how good that side was. Tony, I'm just having a look through this squad on that 86 tour. And, of course, you know, the vast majority of players are from Sydney clubs. Uh, there's a handful of guys from from the Queensland competition. Was it pretty tough for those guys to break into this team? 86, was, I think, was the first clean sweep that New South Wales had in State of Origin, actually. So maybe it was. But, you know, guys like Greg Dowling, Wally, Gino... Uh, Brian Neely was in that side. Les Kiss. Now, Les, I think Les Kiss was in Sydney at that stage, but he's a Queenslander, of course. <laughs> Gary Belcher was the fullback. So a lot of them were not from Brisbane itself, but but were Queenslanders playing in the in the uh, in the national competition. But no, they more than held their own. No doubt about that. They were they weren't just passengers in that side. They were they were dead set fair income. Uh, kangaroos in that very, very successful team. Was Wally Lewis an automatic selection as skipper in that side? Yeah, he was. He was. He was the Australian captain at that stage, and and uh, yeah, he was. Uh, he was very, uh, very influential. He and Sterlow were the halves, of course. Uh, Brett Kenny. A lot of people would think that Brett Kenny should have been the five eight, but 
he played in the centres, as I just said, and uh, that was a very good side. But Wally had a very unfortunate tour in 1982 when he went over as vice-captain of the of the 82 team. And I think after the first test match was dropped and uh, Brett Kenny and uh, Sturlow uh, were the halves for the rest of that tour. So uh, Wally had some, some ground to make up from 1982, but certainly did it. No, he was... Uh, 1986, I reckon Wally was probably at his prime. Mate, obviously this 1986 tour, they're very different to, you know, the occasional kangaroo tour you see. Now, from your experiences with this 86 side, who, who was the best off ground for you? Ground? Socially? Socially, yeah. Oh. Started by the looks of it. Oh, yeah, they were all, look, it was, it was the media. That I didn't spend in, in, in the, in, on the 1990 tour. I actually stayed in the same hotel as the players. We were based in Manchester. Whereas in 1986 and in the earlier Kangaroo tours, they stayed in the Dragonara Hotel in Leeds, but would go to, say they went to Sheffield to play, well, they might stay the night in Sheffield or they went to somewhere else and played. They, you know, even though Leeds was their base, they'd go away and stay you know, two or three nights somewhere else. But they didn't do that in, in, uh, in, 19, uh, in 1990. They stayed in the one hotel in Manchester. So... And the media stayed in the same hotel, so we got to know them a lot better. But 86, uh, mate, they're all good. No, no one particularly stands out to me as being uh, more social than anybody else. But just a, just a period in the game when the players and the media seemed to get on pretty well together. And it was, you know, you'd go down for a drink in the hotel bar at 6 o'clock or 5 o'clock of an afternoon, there'd be two or three players there, and you'd just wander over and have a beer with them. That's how it was back then. Take me to the 1990 Kangaroo Tour, mate. And obviously, uh, you know, now the Brisbane Broncos, they're established. The Penrith Panthers, they're on the rise. The Canberra Raiders are flying. That squad obviously looked very different four years later. It did. Um, a lot of similarities. Of course, there was, again, controversy uh, and, again, involving Wally Lewis. Um, you know, he was in line to be uh, in that side and be one of the first players, I think, to tour, or he would have joined a band of players to tour with, make three successive kangaroo tours. He'd broken his arm towards the end of the season and uh, he was picked in the side and underwent a, 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 a fitness test in Sydney uh, just before the team was to leave and failed. Dr. Bill Monaghan failed him. It was huge controversy. And, uh, and while he didn't make the trip, I think Wayne Pearce might have come in as his replacement in 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 that uh, in that 1990 team, but it was a great team uh, again in 1990. But it was interesting um, that they got beaten in the first test, and and uh, of course with the time difference between England uh, and Australia, rugby league week went to bed would go to bed on a, on a Monday or a Sunday night. But being a gloss, having a gloss uh, coloured cover. Uh, that had to be done on on the Friday, so you had to be, you know, had to be thinking pretty much ahead. And because Australia was so dominant in the early games, um, the, the powers that be back in Sydney uh, put some photos of some Australian players on the cover and wrote right across the top, "Champs," and that was to be the cover to come out on on the, the next week when the magazine went to went to press. Well, of course, Australia got beaten in that Test match. Uh, unbelievably, it was a, one of the biggest upsets for a long, long time. So rather than change the cover totally, uh, somebody smarter than me and probably not, not so much smarter than a lot of other people crossed out the A 
in champs and put a U up the top and had it, and, and the cover said chump <laughs> because it's trying to get beaten. Well, you can imagine Bobby Fulton, angry little Bobby Fulton, the coach, what he thought of that. So another luncheon that we'd, we'd planned to have with uh, the Australian team because I think on that trip we had 600 people wow. from uh, on Rugby League Week supporters tours. They boycotted it. The team boycotted the lunch with with our players. Bobby Fulton boycotted that lunch. No one's allowed to go. And uh, the great Bobby Linder turned up. He defied his coach and said, no, no I'm going to go and meet the fans. And Bob Linder was the only Australian player that came on that uh, trip. But... It's interesting, of course, that trip, as you would remember, Nathan, I think, and a lot of people would, would remember, or maybe not remember, but know now, that was the uh, the second test. Australia looked like they were going to be beaten, uh, be down 2-0 after two test matches until Ricky Stewart grabbed an intercept and big Mal Meninga ran away and scored that unbelievable try. And uh, I was on the sideline for Channel 10 back then, so that was very exciting and great to be there. Mate, I, I think for me, it's one of my favourite moments in rugby league history seeing, you know, Ricky Stewart just being the competitor he is. He obviously throws that intercept and all of a sudden, this team that simply couldn't lose, it looks like they're going to win this this series in the first two games and then he comes up with an unbelievable play. I love that footage of Mal. He's just going shoulder to shoulder in the background of Ricky Stewart and he finds him. It must have been an unbelievable moment to be there for. Well, it was and it, as I said, it was 600, I think, rugby league week supporters, but there are other supporters stores there from Australia as well. I think the, the English pound was uh, was much more competitive back in those days with the Australian dollar. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether rugby league enjoyed a more um, buoyant time than, than back in the late 80s and, and mid early to mid-90s. It was wonderful. And people just were totally in love with the game. And, and to see the, the, the sea of green and gold in the stands at Old Trafford uh, when when Big Mal made... Well, Ricky, first of all, made the break and Big Mal and ET were involved in it. It was just, just one, almost the full length of the field. It was... Yeah, it was, a, it was one of the great moments for me in, in my association with rugby league and I think a lot of people in Australia. Now, Tony, I know you had a, uh, a couple of nights out with uh, with this squad. Tell me about those. Uh, <laughs> we had some good times. I remember one night Johnny Cartwright and MG and and I and a couple of journos, uh, uh, they were in the they were in uh, the the second team or the what do they call them the emus I think Johnny Cartwright and and MG they didn't make the test side back in those days but uh, no we had some good times and as I said it was the players and the the players and the journos back then got on very well together there was a there was a trust there uh, between the between the two groups and you know we did our jobs and. And they were respectful of that, but you know, when when uh, it came time to socialise, the players back then didn't have any issues at all of, as I said, having a drink or going out on the on the town with the with the with the boys with the journos. It was good, good fun, mate. Uh, obviously, before you go on your third tour in '94, there is the 1992 Rugby World uh, Rugby League World Cup, of course. Uh, where was this one played? Played at, uh, at Wembley, actually. I think it was one of the very last game, last sporting. Uh, events to be played uh, at Wembley Stadium and I think it was Spud Carroll who might have taken his boots off and put them in the you know some of those ceilings these days you can push the tile up and just a timber tile push it up and I think he put his he put his boots up there Mark uh, Spud Carroll in the in the dressing room at Wembley but you know that was a that was a terrific game a great final Kevin Wallace actually was 
was involved in that. He, he's that famous um, uh, cut-out pass to the flying Steve Renoff to score in the corner, and and uh, Australia won that uh, won that World Cup. And then a week later, we went to uh, Wigan. The Broncos, who were the premiers in in 1992, played uh, Wigan for the World Club Championships, uh, which they won as well. And <laughs> there's an interesting story there about the the rogue Julian O'Neill, who was a terrific bloke, Julian, but unfortunately Julian didn't know when uh, to... He knew when to start his partying, but unfortunately he didn't know when to stop it and he got into a lot of trouble over that. But on the morning of the game, they went down to a local betting shop and I think Julian saw that he was might have been 25 to 1 or something to score the first try and he thought, oh, that's not a bad idea and whacked some dollars on himself and he did. He scored the first try and became a, a, a wealthy little man for a little while until he knew, he always knew how to get rid of his money, Julian, so it probably didn't last long, but that was tremendous. And, and that's, uh, I remember that we got back to the hotel at Wigan uh, after that and the golden and the rule then, and I think it might have even come from the teetotal coach, Wayne Bennett, no one goes to bed tonight. Uh, the Broncos have won the premiership. I think half a dozen of their players played in the World Cup final. And then a week later, they won the World Club Championship. So that was a that was a huge uh, a huge uh, couple of weeks for the Broncos. Mate, uh, one bloke. And, that uh, I... and I can say that I'll, I'll, let, I'll just add there that yeah. a couple of blokes called Kevy Walters and Alfie Langer led the partying. Mate, I was just about to ask Alf. I don't think he needed uh, an approval to not go to bed. Tell me about him. You obviously would have spent a number of years around Alf. Uh, what, what sort of a bloke is he? A champion. Absolute champion. Uh, very, very shy, very reserved until he gets a bit of lunatic soup into him and then he's, uh, he relaxes and, and becomes a party animal when he's got trouble a couple of times for that, Alfie, but just a, a, a brilliant little bloke from Ipswich, no airs and graces. Um, I, I think the, the accolades that are, that are packed on Alfie for his playing ability embarrass him uh, somewhat. Uh, he's a he's a guy who who uh, loves his footy, loves to punt, loves to socialise, loves his family, and he's um, just a terrific bloke. He, he, I reckon if you did a poll of of uh, rugby league players in in Queensland, um, as the most popular, Alfie would probably be top of the list. Man, another guy that was pretty popular up there, and you did mention him before, scoring a try in that um, World Cup final. Steve Renolf obviously uh, went on to have a fantastic career at the Brisbane Broncos. When was the first time you saw him up there? Uh, where is he? I think he was. He came in the second year, nineteen eighty nine. I think uh, Steve came down from Mergen, uh, where Brian Niebling was from. Uh, he came down. He played initially played for South in Brisbane. But he was one of those players, Steve, that you just saw, when you saw him play, the first time you saw him play, you thought, this kid's going to be something. And uh, there's a lot of players you see. When you first see a player, you think the same thing. And a lot of them, uh, particularly as juniors, don't seem to kick on. But he was one who did. And um, very, very proud Indigenous man, Steve. He got, he's got five beautiful kids. Uh, who are all grown up now and, and, and um, just terrific bloke as well, Steve. And, you know, they're not, there's not too many players I've met over my career, Nathan, that I consider to be good fellas. Uh, genuine, hardworking, 
uh, love to you know love to have a good time, uh, but when when uh, the work's on, they're prepared to sit down and do it. But uh, yeah, he's a he was a wonderful. He, he would gl- glide across the field, Steve Renoff, and one of the one of the great attributes he he seemed to have, and I think he did have, was with his palm, he'd palm a player, and it, he could accelerate at the same time. He, he, it was like he used it. Uh, as a as a forge to get away from the the, the defending player, he's marvellous. And of course, he was he was well known for his uh, for his headgear. Mate, it, it's a, I, I love that 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 try. I, you you know better than me whether it's ninety two or ninety three where he bounces over 92. the try line. Did ninety two? Unbelievable scenes there. He Wolford nearly caught him though. He got close, didn't he? He did. He did. But Steve would say, "Yeah, but I was carrying the football." <laughs> They're heavy those bloody footballs, mate. Take me to the uh, to the nineteen ninety four Kangaroo Tour, and you know a sign of the times here. There's thirteen players coming from the Canberra Raiders and the Brisbane Broncos. Pretty impressive for those two clubs. Yeah, well, they were they dominated, didn't they? That that period of of, of the ARL back in those days, and um, yeah, again, there's just very 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 good players, talented players. You know the Brad Clydes, the Laurie Daly's, Ricky Stewart, uh, and a bit of a changing in the guard back then. I think uh, Kerrod Walters might have been gone away as hooker, and and uh, his, did his brother succeed him? I, I just I just can't quite remember that. But there were three Walters boys on that trip: Kerrod, Ke- Kevin, Kerrod, and, and Steve, uh, which was you know a record for Australia to send away three players, three brothers in the in the one kangaroo team, but. All these tours run into another, each other for me, mate. That, that far back, I find it hard to, to recall what actually happened. Well, mate, I, I guess one thing that would make it harder, there was one common figure in all these tours, Mal Meninga. This is his fourth yeah. kangaroo tour. Incredibly impressive. Well, he was a giant of a man, wasn't he? On, on and off the field, Mal. And um, remember when I first went to Brisbane, Mal was, was very, very um, almost timid. Mal, and he talks about it now as, as um, he was racially vilified back then and he, he, he didn't stand up for himself and he was, he's now, he looks back on that and is a little embarrassed about the fact that he, he didn't. He was a, he was a monolith. He was, he was just so big and strong and he was in the coppers back then. He was in the police force. So, um, you know, it was easy to attack a policeman when he's not on the field, not physically, but, but verbally. And there were some pretty tough hombres around uh, in the Brisbane teams back in those days. But he grew, he developed. The best thing he did certainly was to go to Canberra under the coaching of initially Don Ferner and then Wayne Bennett for one season. Uh, and then, of course, Tim Sheens, who I'm, I'm sure he'll say probably turned him into the player that he that he became. And, and then, of course, he turned his hand to coaching. Not uh, as a club coach, he was wasn't all that successful as a club coach, but as soon as he took over Queensland and then Australia, his, his coaching career blossomed. And um, yeah, he's, a, he's an immortal, deserves to be an immortal without any shadow of doubt. And I think time will judge Mal as probably one of the, one of the very influential uh, people in Australian rugby league. Mate, where, where do you sit him as far as, you know, the most damaging outside backs we've ever seen? I know you mentioned, like, Reg Gaznier and some of these guys from, from years ago earlier. Where do you sit Mal as far as all of those fellas go? didn't mention him earlier, did I? When I went through that list of all the great players, and it, it's, it's hard to remember them all, but 
yeah, he's up there with the with the best. There's no look when he wanted to. Mal could run over the top of anybody. He was just a machine, and well, he was such a big man. He had had thighs like tree trunks and big hands that could palm people off. And of course, he was a, a very accomplished goal kicker, a, a tough poker too in his day. Mal kicked uh, what did he kick five from five seven from seven? Was it in the first? With seven from seven in the first state of origin on his on his twentieth birthday, so he's a fair goal kick as well. But now he was he was when he when he wound when Mal wound up and wanted to get to that uh, to the goal line nine times out of ten he could do it. No, he's a, he was a wonderful talent. Mate, mate, was... I put it this way, mate. When I was playing footy, I would have hated to have tackled Mal Meninga. I would have said, "There you go, mate. There's the passage. There you go." Oh, I couldn't have tackled Mal twenty years ago. Now or twenty years later, not a hope in hell. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.